I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the language that the Bible uses and extrapolate important ideals from this language. The Book of Numbers is a mixed bag, as we've already seen. It goes from boring lists to confusing commands and back again at the drop of a hat. Up until now, that has been all that we have encountered. The first four chapters were simply lists of numbers and organizational charts for who is where, to camp where, and how many of each tribe was present. I mean, sure, there was some other stuff happening in these chapters, but that doesn't help to keep our attention as we read. Then in chapters 5 and 6, things changed. No longer were we reading and accounting and organizing. Instead, we were presented with confusing commands that seemed disjointed and foreign. A woman suspected of adultery in the trial that she's forced to go through to clear her name. And a vow that anyone can take to dedicate themselves to God and to take on a level of holiness and separateness. Two seemingly disconnected sets of commands. What do these have to do with the wilderness? With the human heart and the human method of living under the commands of God? And these chapters caused many to determine that this book was written by multiple authors, each of who had their own agenda, because there does not seem to be a unified theme to the book on the surface. They'll point to the disjointed nature as proof of this claim. Others read these opening chapters and land on a conclusion that there is nothing of value to a modern audience in this. I mean, sure, okay, there might possibly be some historical value, but really... What does any of this matter to us modern, enlightened, and intelligent people? This stuff means nothing to us, so let's just skip over it and move on. Others read these opening chapters and agree, sure, this is disjointed, but there are gems to find here. I mean, they're few and far between, admittedly, but they do exist. And so we learn how God values everyone equally from the census, and God dwells in the midst of us from chapter 2, the distance that the hostile are to be kept from the sacred in chapter 3, and that all parts must work together to ensure that things are accomplished properly from chapter 4. Important lessons, sure, but lessons that have been explored before and elsewhere in Scripture. And so from this view, there's not much more than a repeat of various ideals through a slightly different lenses. And chapter 5 and 6, well, in this view, we can learn from them, but they're not really part of what has come before or even what's about to come. All three of these views, though, whether dismissive or accepting, they land on the idea that the text is disjointed throughout the book of Numbers. I don't see any of these opinions as true representations of what's really happening here in the text. I think that there's more going on here than what the surface readings would seem to indicate. And discerning this deeper context comes in discerning the flow of the text, how each chapter connects to a singular stream of thought that stretches 
throughout the entire first third of the book. The boring and confusing bits that begin this book, they're all connected. And this flow is something that we've looked at before, and it's something that we should continue to have in the back of our mind as we encounter each new chapter. So let's go through it quickly once again as we attempt to discern this week's place in the flow of the text. In chapter 1, we read of the counting of Israel, the counting for the purpose of warfare and for the purpose of bestowing honor on the warriors who were to fight for Israel and for God. Chapter 2 then recounts how Israel was supposed to march into camp, surrounding the holy place as a buffer between the holiness of God and the world, ready to project force outward and following the Spirit of God, something that's recounted again in the books of Ezekiel and Revelation. So the book does open with accounting, but also with the purpose of the people in the wilderness, preparing for the battle that is to come. Chapter 3 then introduces a bit of tension. Those whose place in society had been to act as priests and to serve their gods were being replaced. No longer were those who served to come from among the firstborn, but rather now they would come from those of a second-rate tribe. And their purpose is not a purpose of projecting force outward, but their purpose is one of protecting what's inward, guarding the heart of the camp from the encroachment of the works of the enemy. And in chapter 4, we read of the areas of service that these newly chosen servants were to operate in, their charges and their roles in caring for and moving the things of God. In chapter 5, then, things turn to the topic of jealousy and adultery. The things that have come before, these policies that God was implementing to overturn the cultural norms, would begin to sow dissension among the rakes. And so a foundation is laid for a curse to be applied to anyone who removes themselves from the authority of their heavenly husband and his appointed servants. But in chapter 6, a concession of sorts is made. Simply because the Levites serve in these specific tasks in the tabernacle, it does not forbid others from choosing to dedicate themselves, choosing to take a place of service and honor for a time, but just for a time, and at a cost. And that brings us to this week. And this week, we return to the first issue that we found in this book. An interminable list. Not just an interminable list, but an extremely repetitive list. But once again, we find that with this list, there's a purpose. And that purpose in the flow? Well, we just read of those who could choose to dedicate themselves to God. And this chapter, we read of the people participating in a dedication of things to God. Not just on a whim, but for the purpose of celebrating the inauguration of the altar and the tabernacle. And in this dedication, gifts are given to Hashem. This chapter continues on in the theme of dedication and sanctification, which is to be set apart and separate. And it demonstrates in this book the acceptance of the people of the policies and the practices that have been commanded up to this point. But there's more to it than this. So let's read this chapter and then discuss dedication. Numbers chapter 7 And it came to be, when Moshe finished setting up the dwelling place, that he anointed it and set it apart and all its furnishings, as well as the altar and all its utensils. Thus he anointed them and set them apart. And the leaders of Israel, heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over the ones registered, drew near. And they brought their offering before Hashem, six covered wagons and twelve cattle, a wagon for every two of the leaders, and for each one a bull. And they brought them near before the dwelling place. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Accept these from them, and they shall be used in doing the service of the tent of appointment, and you shall give them to the Levites, each one according to his service. 
And Moshe took the wagons and the cattle and gave them to the Levites. He gave two wagons and four cattle to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And he gave four wagons and eight cattle to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the hand of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kahat he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they bore on their shoulders. And the leaders brought the dedication offering of the altar in the day it was anointed. So the leaders brought their offering before the altar. And Hashem said to Moshe, Let them bring their offering, one leader each day, for the dedication of the altar. And the one who brought his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, from the tribe of Yehuda. And his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offering, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Tzuar, leader of Yisachar, brought near. He brought his offering, one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, a year old. This was the offering of Nathaniel, the son of Tzuar. On the third day, Aliav, the son of Chelon, the leader of the children of Zebulun. His offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, and both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Chelon. On the fourth day, Elitzur, the son of Shedeir, leader of the children of Reuven. His offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. On the fifth day, Shalumiel, the son of Zureshadai, leader of the children of Shimon. His offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Shalumiel, the son of Zereshadai. On the sixth day, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, the leader of the children of Gad, his offering was one silver dish of the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, 
one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five ram, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elyasaph, the son of Deuel. On the seventh day, Elishamah, the son of Amahud, leader of the children of Ephraim, his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five ram, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elishama, the son of Amahud. On the eighth day, Gamliel, the son of Padatsur, leader of the children of Manasseh, his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offering, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Gamaliel, the son of Peretzur. On the ninth day, Avidan, the son of Gidoni, leader of the children of Binyamin, his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five ram, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Avidan, the son of Gidoni. On the tenth day, Achiazer, the son of Amishadai, leader of the children of Dan, his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offering, two cattle, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Achiazer, the son of Amishadai. On the eleventh day, Pagiel, the son of Ochran, leader of the children of Asher, his offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five ram, five male goats, five male lambs a year old, this was the offering of Pagiel, the son of Ochran. On the twelfth day, Achira, the son of Enan, the leader of the children of Naphtali. His offering was one silver dish, the weight of which was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels according to the shekel of the set-apart place, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold ladle of ten shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old as an ascending offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and as a sacrifice of peace offerings, two cattle, five ram, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Achira, the son of Enan. This was the dedication of the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver dishes, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold ladles. Each silver dish was 130 shekels and each bowl 70 shekels. All of the silver vessels was 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the set-apart place. 
The twelve gold ladles filled with incense was ten shekels each, according to the shekel of the set-apart place. All the gold of the ladles was one hundred and twenty shekels. All the cattle for the ascending offering were twelve young bulls and rams twelve, the male lambs a year old twelve, with their grain offering and the male goats as a sin offering twelve. And all the cattle for the sacrifice of the peace offerings were twenty-four bulls, the rams sixty, the male goats sixty, the lambs a year old sixty. This was the dedication of the altar after it was anointed. This chapter is one that is interesting in its composition. It is a narrative chapter in that it tells a story of what the people did. But it's also one of those repetitive chapters that I've already spoken of. And as this chapter opens, it sets the scene for what we're about to read. The events of this chapter occurred after the anointing and the setting up of the tabernacle. And if we turn to Exodus 40, we discover that this event occurred on the first day of the first month of the second year. But how long after everything was gathered, erected, set up, and anointed? Well, apparently more than a month, because in verse 2 we read that the leaders of the various tribes of Israel drew near. And in this verse it makes mention that these were the same leaders who were the heads of the tribes over all who had been registered. And the census was not ordered until the first day of the second month in the second year. So what is the timing on this? Well, there's the possibility that this was all just simply written later that the gifts that were given at the time of the anointing of the altar in the first month, but that the record was not made until later. And at that time, it was recognized that it was the same leaders of these clans at the time of the census who were the ones who brought the gifts earlier in the month. So why do I bring this up? Well, because there is an issue with timing in this chapter that we're going to see in just a moment, but it comes in a few verses. So let's continue on in the flow of the chapter. So this first gift that the princes gave to Hashem were six wagons and twelve oxen to pull these wagons, one wagon for every two tribes and one oxen per tribe. To this, Hashem tells Moses to accept the gifts, and so he does, and the wagons were then given to the Levites, two wagons for Gershon for the transportation of the curtains and veils, four wagons to Merari for the transportation of the boards and sockets, and Kohat gets nothing of this gift, because they were to carry their burdens from the tabernacle on their own shoulders. Now, the issue of timing crops up in verse 10 when the introduction of the dedication offering, or the Hanukkah offering. This first states that the Hanukkah offerings were brought in the day that the altar was anointed. Again, the day of the anointing of the altar was on the first day of the first month of the second year. There is no break here to separate the offering of the wagons and the offering of the dedication gifts. And yet the phrase is used that the leaders brought their dedication offerings of the altar in the day that it was anointed. Now, if we take this literally as one day, then all of the offerings were brought on the same day. And so we're forced to take this phrase, this word, bayom, figuratively. Because verse 11 makes it clear that the elders are to bring their gifts one per day for the dedication. Add to this that these could not have happened for more than two weeks after the anointing of the altar, because there was the necessity of the seven days of ordination for the priests before any other sacrifices could be offered. Then there was the Passover that occurred 14 days after, unless we think that these gifts were brought alongside the Passover sacrifices, and this dedication then overlapped the festival of Matzah. If we recognize this, we can see that the word Bayom in this case has nothing at all to do with the timing of the events but rather it serves as a literary connector to bind the ideas of the anointing and the dedication by the people together. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about are the days of creation literal or figurative, and I'm really not going to take a stance on that. Go back and listen to the teaching on Genesis 1 if you want to see what I believe Genesis 1 is actually speaking on. In fact, I simply wanted to point out that here we find a use of the word yom in both a literal and a figurative manner in back-to-back verses. In fact, it's so figurative that it's not even speaking of timing at all in this instance. Now, one could take the stance that bayom, or in that day, is an idiomatic phrase, but that's not consistent throughout Scripture, as we read in many places where it is specifically speaking of a literal day using this word. So these events, they did not literally happen or even begin to occur on this day, as it didn't even happen within a few weeks, likely, of the anointing of the altar. Now, I think we should recognize that this word can be used in both ways and then not be dogmatic with anyone in our own views of whether this word was used in which way in various places. Fact of the matter is, is that nearly every commentary that I consulted made sure to point out this fact that this word is being used figuratively. And so, here you go. This is one spot that can be used to make the case of the usage of Yom as a period of time that's longer than a single day, or as simply a word to connect various ideas together. For the matter of when this occurred, uh, this is one of those areas that caused many to point out contradictions in the text. The contradiction being, this was supposed to have happened in the day of the anointing of the altar, but it references the elders that were over the tribes that were counted in the census. Now, this is easily resolved by acknowledging that this was not being written as it happened. All it takes is the author writing down the events after both sets of events and a problem solved. Both the census and the anointing of the altar had already occurred. And what do you know? It was the same guys who brought the gifts. They're also these same guys who were named in the census. The other controversy over this text comes from those that require that the events of the Torah be told of chronologically. The idea of a chronological order in this book is easily demonstrated to be false, as we read in chapter 9 of those who were unclean at the time of the Passover, and so the command is given that they can have a second Passover. Passover occurred before the first chapter of this book, and so there's no problem in proving that this book especially is not organized chronologically, but rather thematically. Now, as for the gifts themselves, there is a practicality to the command that they should come one at a time on their own days. If we look at the lists of gifts and consider what they mean, we can easily spot why. So the gifts that were given by each of the princes of Israel were these. We've read them 12 times already. So, a silver dish of 130 shekels, a silver bowl, 70 shekels, both filled with fine flour and oil. These were brought as a mincha offering. There's a gold ladle of 10 shekels filled with incense, then a bull, a ram, and a yearling lamb as an ola, ascending offering, a single male goat as a sin offering, and a shlamim, a peace offering of two bulls or oxen, five ram, five goats, and five yearling lambs. In this we see that each of the primary categories of sacrifice were included in these gifts. And it's in this last that we see the need for the entire day to be taken by each tribe because the shlamim was a meal that was shared by a lot of people. And with this many sacrifices, a lot of people from each tribe got to participate in the celebration by eating of this meal. 
This wasn't just a single guy or even a representative group of people, but rather it was the entire tribe coming together to celebrate the dedication of the tabernacle for its use. Now this too, even though is steeped in the language of the individual leaders, it is a communal event, a celebration of epic proportions, and we see this through the giving of the Shlemim offerings. Now, after running the figures, this amount of animals would not provide meat for everyone in every tribe to be able to eat, at least not in the proportions that we eat today. But it would be enough for a large cross-section of the men to be able to eat or to be able to participate. Even if in some tribes they only just got a bite, they got to eat of the gift of dedication on the altar. Now, there is in this chapter a word that has come into popular usage in many circles. It's a word that appears for the first time in Scripture in this passage, and it's used four times in this passage. And it's the word that's translated as dedication. That's the word Hanukkah. Yes, this is the same name as the winter holiday of Hanukkah. The very first Hanukkah is what is being described in this passage, but it's not the last Hanukkah that we read of in Scripture. We find several other instances of dedication in the Bible, and it's not always the temple that's being dedicated. So let's look at these other dedications. In the book of Kings, we read of the dedication of Solomon's temple, the time when the people gathered together and held a festival of initiation for the newly built temple. We read of this event in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7. Now, in 1 Kings, we never read the word dedication or Hanukkah, but we do read of the celebration that was held in Jerusalem. In this passage, there is a seven-day festival, then followed by a seven-day festival. But the purpose of one of these sevens is not expressly given. And in this celebration, enough animals were sacrificed to feed the entire population of Israel for 14 days. In 2 Chronicles, however, we read of the same event, and in this place, it gives us more information on what is happening. 2 Chronicles 7, 8-10 And Solomon at that time observed the festival seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamat to the Wadi of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held an assembly, for they performed the dedication, the Hanukkah, of the altar seven days, and the festival seven days. And on the twenty-third day of the seventh new moon, they sent the people away to their tents, rejoicing and glad of heart for the goodness that Hashem had done for David and for Solomon and for his people, Israel. In this case, the seven-day festival of dedication preceded the seven-day festival of Sukkot. This means that Yom Kippur occurred during the festival of Hanukkah. So, perhaps this dedication here in Numbers did overlap the Passover and the beginning of Matzah. Maybe it did. I, we really don't know. The next dedication that we read in Scripture for a temple is in the book of Ezra. Here we read of the dedication of the second temple. Ezra 6, 15-17 And this house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the sons of the exile, did the Hanukkah, the dedication of this house of God, with joy. And they offered at the dedication, the Hanukkah, of the house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. In this case, Hanukkah occurred in the month of Adar, the twelfth month of the Hebrew calendar the end of winter, just before Passover. 
Now, the next dedication that we read of an Israel engaging in is not a dedication of a temple at all. It's the dedication of the city walls in Jerusalem after they had been rebuilt by Nehemiah. Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, the dedication, the Hanukkah, the walls of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to perform the Hanukkah dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving and with singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. This is not a dedication of a place of worship, but the dedication of a fortification that would serve to keep their enemies at bay. Now, several hundred years later, the Greeks, they profaned this temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and erecting an idol to Zeus in the holy place. At this time, there was a family that led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. And in the end, under-equipped, outmanned, and outclassed, the Maccabees came out victorious. After their victory, they went into the temple and began the process of rededicating the temple the second time to Hashem once again. 1 Maccabees 4.36-59 At that time, Judas and his brothers said, Look, our enemies have been crushed. Let's go up and cleanse and rededicate the sanctuary. All the army gathered together, and they went up to Mount Zion, and they found the sanctuary deserted, and the altar treated with disrespect, and the gates burned in the courts. Bushes had sprung up like an open field on one of the mountains. They saw that the priest's chambers were in ruins as well, so they tore their clothes and mourned with great sorrow. They sprinkled their head with ashes and fell face down on the ground. When the trumpet sounded a signal, they cried out to heaven. Then Judas chose some soldiers to fight against those anointed in the elevated fortress until he completed cleansing the sanctuary. He selected priests who were blameless and devoted to the law. They cleansed the sanctuary and took the polluted stones to a ritually unclean place. They discussed what to do about the altar for entirely burned offerings since it had been polluted. They decided it was best to tear it down so it wouldn't be a lasting shameful reminder to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar. They stored the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Mount until a prophet should arise who could say what to do with them. They then took unfinished stones, in keeping with the law, and they built a new altar like the former one. They also restored the sanctuary and the temple interior and dedicated the courtyards. They fashioned new holy equipment and brought the lampstand and the incense altar and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand which illuminated the temple. They placed bread on the table and hung curtains. Finally, they completed all the work that they had started. They rose early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. It was the year 148. They offered sacrifice following the law on the new altar for entirely burned offerings that they had made. In the very season, on the exact day that the Gentiles had polluted it, it was dedicated with songs, harps, lutes, and cymbals. All the people bowed to the ground and worshipped and blessed heaven, which had given them success. So they celebrated the rededication of the altar for eight days and joyfully made entirely burned offerings. They offered a sacrifice of salvation and praise. They decorated the front of the temple with gold and small shields. They restored the gates to the priest chambers, furnishing them with doors. The people were extremely glad, and the disgrace of the Gentiles brought was lifted. Then Judas with his brothers and all the assembly of Israel laid down the law that every year at that season the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and happiness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of Kislev. And this is the holiday that we celebrate every winter at the time of Hanukkah. 
It's the festival of rededication of the temple after it had been defiled by the Seleucids. This event in the Maccabees was not the first dedication that was celebrated. It's simply the dedication that we tend to celebrate today. So why do we celebrate it at this time, especially when the temple that has been dedicated at that time, it's no more? Well, dedication is something that should be done by each person who attaches themselves to Israel. We read of a very real way of dedicating oneself to Hashem last week in the Nazarite vow, but we'll come back to this later. The fact is that throughout the history of Israel, there were times when the people came together to celebrate the dedication of something for a purpose. Each of the temples and the tabernacle were dedicated and even rededicated. But the dedication that's spoken of is not purely a religious dedication. Even the walls of Jerusalem were dedicated, or Hanukkah, upon their completion. But each time the dedication was for a specific purpose. But there is one other dedication that occurs in the Bible, one that is also for a specific purpose, but it is not a dedication of the things of God, or even for a purpose of the God of heaven, but rather is the dedication of something nefarious. In the book of Ezra, we read of the dedication of the second temple, and this part of Ezra is one of those places in scripture that's written in Aramaic and not in Hebrew. And yet, The Aramaic word for dedication is the same as the Hebrew word, but in Aramaic, Hanukkah. Well, we find this Aramaic version of this word used in one other place in scripture that was also written in Aramaic. And in this place, it speaks of a dedication that occurs not for an item in Israel, but for an item in Babylon. Daniel 3, 1-3 Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babel. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the viceroys and the nobles and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the viceroys and the nobles and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the judges, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication, Hanukkah, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The statue that Nebuchadnezzar built had a dedication ceremony as well. And it was during this dedication that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to exercise civil disobedience by refusing to bow. And it was at this dedication that led to an ultimate test of their faith. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't participate in this dedication ceremony. Why? What was it that prevented them from being able to participate? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already purposed in their hearts that they were dedicated to another god because they had determined to dedicate their own lives. In modern terms, they had dedicated the temple of their bodies to Hashem. They could not participate in a dedication to another god. They chose to be destroyed rather than overturn their dedication to God. In the words of Revelation, they loved not their lives unto death. They recognized the truth of Yeshua's words in Matthew 6.24. No one is able to serve two masters, For either he shall hate the one and love the other, or else he shall cleave to one and despise the other. 
the specifics of what is being imparted in this verse is a dichotomy between service to Hashem and service to money. But this admonition, it goes beyond just money. It goes into all parts of our lives. And these three men, they understood this. In fact, all of the first part of the book of Daniel has this theme running throughout. How do you serve an earthly master and Hashem at the same time? And especially, how do you serve Hashem when your earthly master commands you to forsake your dedication to him? Throughout the book of Daniel, we see people faced with this choice. Serve God and serve men when there is no contradiction. But when a contradiction arises, then comes the choice. Serve God or serve your other master. Because you can't serve both. You must have a priority in your life of who is your master. And then you must walk that out and be willing to bet your life on your decision. You must choose to serve one master and one master alone. And then all that you do, whether for God or for man, is to be done as for God. Ephesians 6, 5-8, Servants, obey your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to the Messiah, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Messiah, doing the desires of God from the inner self, rendering service with pleasure as to the master and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he shall receive the same from the master, whether he is slave or free. Service to men as an extension of service to God. And this is the fine line that Daniel and his friends had to walk. Why were they in such high positions in Babylon? Because they served the king who had conquered them as if they were serving Hashem himself. They fully dedicated themselves to the role that they had been forced into. But when their master crossed the line and attempted to replace God, they had to make a choice. Serve Hashem or serve men. Serve Hashem or serve other gods. This is a choice that many men are forced to make. But over time, even the most dedicated and wise men can fall into the trap of multiple masters. First Kings 11, 4-8, And it came to be when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with Hashem his God, as was the heart of his father David. And Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the mighty ones of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Thus Solomon did evil in the eyes of Hashem and did not follow Hashem completely like his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And so he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon forgot his God. He forgot who he was dedicated to. He allowed himself to serve multiple masters, his God and his wives. And in the end, he chose his wives over Hashem. He allowed his love for these women to take priority in his life, even though God had blessed him and revealed himself to Solomon on multiple occasions. All it took was time and distraction, and the wisest man in history was tempted away from dedicated service. We must not allow this to happen in our lives. We must propose to dedicate ourselves to Hashem. This is easy to do when we are fresh, when God first appears to us and things are real. 
when we cross that initial line and purpose ourselves in dedication. But then time passes. Concerns and worries arise, and we perhaps begin to chase after money, or security, or comfort, or pleasure. Or temptations arise, and we begin to chase after women, or drugs, or an experience. And we forget our initial purposing. The dedication that was once so central and integral in our lives wanes, and the concerns of the world begin to take a more central role in our lives. And like Solomon, when we get older, we can be tempted away to serve other gods. But the fact of the matter is that we must make the choice that no matter what happens, we will serve him and him alone. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 Or do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with the price. Therefore honor God in your body and in your spirit, which are of God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us just as he did in the temple and in the tabernacle. And so we should dedicate our own temples to his service. But one-time dedication, that's easy to forget. We're human, and we change our minds, and we are treacherous in our hearts. And so a continual, yearly time of the rededication is beneficial for us as servants of our God. It reminds us year after year, and circumstance after circumstance, that we serve one master alone. All other masters in our lives are secondary to the service of this one master. And when the time comes to choose between two masters, we can remember which master we truly serve. You see, here in number seven, Israel dedicated the tabernacle and the altar to its service. They came together as a community to celebrate and to affirm this dedication and their own dedication to Hashem. Day after day, each tribe came into the tabernacle and gave gifts to the service of the tabernacle, and they each enjoyed a meal shared with their God and with each other. And the sacrifice, the Shlemim sacrifice, is one in which all who ate of the meal were dedicating themselves to Hashem and to His service. But their dedication, it doesn't last long. They quickly forget how God had appeared to them, how he had provided for them, and how they themselves had participated in the dedication. It's not long before temptations arise. The food of Egypt, you remember that? The places of honor that were taken from us, you remember that? Pleasures of the flesh were offered to them. Times of lack and hunger and thirst came upon them. The fear of an enemy that looks much stronger than them. And to each of these, Some fell. In general, the testing of the wilderness got to them, and they forgot their God, and reality of their heart was revealed for all to see. Their service to their stomach, or to comfort, or to pleasure, or to security, took first place. And they failed to live up to their dedication. Just like Solomon. Just like Israel. And the tendency is not something that's hidden. It's something that at least one of the leaders of Israel recognized. At least it was recognized after the wilderness. 
So many people are familiar with the words of Joshua in the last chapter of the book that bears his name. We even sing a song about it. We put it on plaques on our walls. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a great sentiment. But how many of you know the context of that statement? Joshua 24, 14 through 25. And now fear Hashem, serve him in perfection and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve Hashem. And if it seems evil in your eyes to serve Hashem, choose for yourselves this day whom you are going to serve, whether the gods which your father served that were beyond the river, or the mighty ones of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But I and my house, we serve Hashem. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us to forsake Hashem, to serve other gods. For Hashem our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did these great signs before our eyes, and has guarded us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And Hashem drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites, who dwell in the land. We too serve Hashem, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve Hashem, for he is a holy God, a jealous God is he. He does not bear with your transgression and with your sin. If you forsake Hashem and shall serve gods of a stranger, then he shall turn back and do evil and consume you, after he has been good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we do serve Hashem. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Hashem for yourself to serve him. And they said, Witnesses, and now put away the gods of the stranger which are in your midst and incline your heart to Hashem, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Hashem, our God, we serve and his voice we obey. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he laid on them a law and a judgment in Shechem. Joshua lays the challenge at the feet of the people of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve Hashem. And the people respond with, we will serve Hashem too. And then Joshua answers them in an odd way. You are not able to serve Hashem. He is holy. He is jealous. He will not bear your continual transgression. And they persist, no, you have us wrong. We will indeed serve Hashem. And so Joshua cuts a covenant, and he sets up a monument as a witness for the people. And yet, after his death, what do the people do? They go after other gods. Judges 2, 8-13 And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Hashem, died. 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnat-Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. And all that generation were likewise gathered to their fathers, and another generation arose after them, who did not know Hashem, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of Hashem, and served the Baals. They forsook Hashem, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods, the gods of the peoples who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked Hashem. So they forsook Hashem and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. The dedication that was so close in the victory that Israel had experienced over the land. 
the determination that the people felt and the passion of that moment over time melted away and became nothing more than lip service. And this is a trap that is so very easy to fall into, to mean it when it's fresh, but then to quickly forget and to chase after other masters. And so it's on us to not only be dedicated, but to mean our dedication, to pursue our dedication with our whole selves, to remember our dedication in the midst of hardship. And so, year after year, we are given, in the wisdom of the Maccabees, a festival to remember our dedication, to celebrate our dedication, to focus on our Hanukkah to God as a continual reminder before our eyes of who our Master is and what our purpose is. And it's through constant focus and reminder of our dedication that we can stay on the path of life as we continually derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.